Encyclical Letter Satis Cognitum on the Unity of the Church by Pope Leo XIII, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Unity of the Church Encyclical Letter Satis Cognitum June 29, 1896 Part 1 it is sufficiently well known unto you that no small share of our thoughts and of our care is devoted to our endeavor to bring back to the fold, placed under the guardianship of Jesus Christ, the chief pastor of souls, sheep that have strayed. Bent upon this, we have thought it most conducive to this salutary end and purpose to describe the exemplar and, as it were, the lineaments of the church. Amongst these the most worthy of our chief consideration is unity. This the divine author impressed on it as a lasting sign of truth and of unconquerable strength. The essential beauty and comeliness of the church ought greatly to influence the minds of those who consider it. Nor is it improbable that ignorance may be dispelled by the consideration that false ideas and prejudices may be dissipated from the minds chiefly of those who find themselves in error without fault of theirs, and that even a love for the church may be stirred up in the souls of men like unto that charity wherewith Christ loved and united himself to that spouse redeemed by his precious blood. Christ loved the church and delivered himself up for it. Ephesians 5.25 if those about to come back to their most loving mother, not yet fully known or culpably abandoned, should perceive that their return involves not indeed the shedding of their blood, at which price, nevertheless, the church was bought by Jesus Christ, but some lesser trouble and labor, let them clearly understand that this burden has been laid on them not by the will of man, but by the will and command of God. They may thus, by the help of heavenly grace, realize and feel the truth of the divine saying, My yoke is sweet and my burden light. Matthew 11.30 Wherefore, having put all our hope in the Father of lights, from whom cometh every best gift and every perfect gift, according to James 1.17, from him, namely, who alone gives the increase, 1 Corinthians 3.6, we earnestly pray that he will graciously grant us the power of bringing conviction home to the minds of men. Although God can do by his own power all that is affected by created natures, nevertheless, in the counsels of his loving providence, he has preferred to help men by the instrumentality of men. And, as in the natural order, he does not usually give full perfection except by means of man's work and actions, so also he makes use of human aid for that which lies beyond the limits of nature. That is to say, for the sanctification and salvation of souls. But it is obvious that nothing can be communicated amongst men save by means of external things which the senses can perceive. For this reason, the Son of God assumed human nature who being in the form of God, emptied himself, 
taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of a man. Philippians 2 verses 6 and 7. And thus living on earth, he taught his doctrine and gave his laws, conversing with men. And since it was necessary that his divine mission should be perpetuated to the end of time, he took to himself disciples, trained by himself, and made them partakers of his own authority. And when he had invoked upon them from heaven the spirit of truth, he bade them go through the whole world and faithfully preach to all nations what he had taught and what he had commanded, so that by the profession of his doctrine and the observance of his laws, the human race might attain to holiness on earth and never-ending happiness in heaven. In this wise, and on this principle, the church was begotten. If we consider the chief end of this church, and the proximate efficient causes of salvation, it is undoubtedly spiritual, but in regard to those who constitute it, and to the things which lead to these spiritual gifts, it is external and necessarily visible. The apostles received a mission to teach by visible and audible signs, and they discharged their mission only by words and acts, which certainly appealed to the senses. So that their voices, falling upon the ears of those who heard them, begot faith in souls. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10.17 And faith itself, that is, assent given to the first and supreme truth, though residing essentially in the intellect, must be manifested by outward profession. For with the heart we believe unto justice, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10.10 In the same way, in man, nothing is more internal than heavenly grace which begets sanctity, but the ordinary and chief means of obtaining grace are external. That is to say, the sacraments which are administered by men, especially chosen for that purpose, by means of certain ordinances. Jesus Christ commanded his apostles and their successors to the end of time to teach and rule the nations. He ordered the nations to accept their teaching and obey their authority. But this correlation of rights and duties in the Christian commonwealth not only could not have been made permanent, but could not even have been initiated except through the senses, which are, of all things, the messengers and interpreters. For this reason, the Church is so often called in Holy Writ a body, and even the body of Christ. Now you are the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12.27. And precisely because it is a body, is the Church visible? And because it is the body of Christ, is it living and energizing? Because by the infusion of his power, Christ guards and sustains it, just as the vine gives nourishment and renders fruitful the branches united to it. And as in animals, the vital principle is unseen and invisible, and is evidenced and manifested by the movements and action of the members, so the principle of supernatural life in the Church is clearly shown in that which is done by it. From this it follows that those who arbitrarily conjure up and picture to themselves a hidden 
and invisible church are in grievous and pernicious error, as also are those who regard the church as a human institution which claims a certain obedience and discipline and external duties, but which is without the perennial communication of the gifts of divine grace and without all that which testifies by constant and undoubted signs to the existence of that life which is drawn from God. It is assuredly as impossible that the Church of Jesus Christ can be the one or the other as that man should be a body alone or a soul alone. The connection and union of both elements is as absolutely necessary to the true Church as the intimate union of the soul and body is to human nature. The Church is not something dead. It is the body of Christ endowed with supernatural life. As Christ, the head and exemplar, is not wholly in his visible human nature, which Photinians and Nestorians assert, nor wholly in the invisible divine nature, as the Monophysites hold, but is one from and in both natures, visible and invisible. So the mystical body of Christ is the true church only because its visible parts draw life and power from the supernatural gifts and other things whence spring their very nature and essence. But since the church is such by divine will and constitution, such it must uniformly remain to the end of time. If it did not, then it would not have been founded as perpetual, and the end set before it would have been limited to some certain place and to some certain period of time, both of which are contrary to the truth. The union, consequently, of visible and invisible elements, because it harmonizes with the natural order and by God's will belongs to the very essence of the Church, must necessarily remain so long as the Church itself shall endure. Wherefore Chrysostom writes, Secede not from the Church, for nothing is stronger than the Church. Thy hope is the church, thy salvation is the church, thy refuge is the church. It is higher than the heavens and wider than the earth. It never grows old, but is ever full of vigor. Wherefore Holy Writ, pointing to its strength and stability, calls it a mountain. From his homily, De Capto Eutropio, number 6. Also Augustine says, Unbelievers think that the Christian religion will last for a certain period in the world and will then disappear, but it will remain as long as the sun, as long as the sun rises and sets, that is, as long as the ages of time shall roll, the Church of God, the true body of Christ on earth, will not disappear, in his commentary on Psalm 70, number 8. And in another place, the church will totter if its foundation shakes. But how can Christ be moved? Christ remaining immovable, it, the church, shall never be shaken. Where are they that say that the church has disappeared from the world when it cannot even be shaken? From his commentary on Psalm 103, Second Sermon, number 5. He who seeks the truth must be guided by these fundamental principles that is to say, that Christ the Lord instituted and formed the Church. Wherefore, when we are asked what its nature is, 
the main thing is to see what Christ wished, and what in fact he did. Judged by such a criterion, it is the unity of the church which must be principally considered, and of this, for the general good, it has seemed useful to speak in this encyclical. It is so evident from the clear and frequent testimonies of Holy Writ that the true church of Jesus Christ is one, that no Christian can dare to deny it. But in judging and determining the nature of this unity, many have erred in various ways. Not the foundation of the church alone, but its whole constitution belongs to the class of things effected by Christ's free choice. For this reason, the entire case must be judged by what was actually done. We must consequently investigate not how the church may possibly be one, but how he who founded it willed that it should be one. But when we consider what was actually done, we find that Jesus Christ did not, in point of fact, institute a church to embrace several communities similar in nature, but in themselves distinct, and lacking those bonds which render the church unique and indivisible after that manner in which the symbol of our faith we profess, I believe in one church. The church, in respect of its unity, belongs to the category of things indivisible by nature, though heretics try to divide it into many parts. We say, therefore, that the Catholic Church is unique in its essence, in its doctrine, in its origin, and in its excellence. Furthermore, the eminence of the Church arises from its unity as the principle of its constitution, a unity surpassing all else and having nothing like unto it or equal to it. From St. Clement of Alexandria, Histromatum, Book 8, Chapter 17. For this reason, Christ, speaking of this mystical edifice, mentions only one church which he calls his own. I will build my church. Any other church except this one, since it has not been founded by Christ, cannot be the true church. This becomes even more evident when the purpose of the divine founder is considered. For what did Christ the Lord ask? What did he wish in regard to the church founded or about to be founded? This, to transmit to it the same mission and the same mandate which he had received from the Father, that they should be perpetuated. This he clearly resolved to do. This he actually did. As the Father hath sent me, I also send you. John 20, 21. As thou hast sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. John 17, 18. But the mission of Christ is to save that which had perished. That is to say, not some nations or peoples, but the whole human race, without distinction of time or place. The Son of Man came that the world might be saved by him. John 3.17 For there is no other name under heaven given to men, whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 The church, therefore, is bound to communicate without stint to all men and to transmit through all ages the salvation effected by Jesus Christ and the blessings flowing therefrom. 
wherefore by the will of its founder it is necessary that this church should be one in all lands and at all times to justify the existence of more than one church it would be necessary to go outside this world and to create a new and unheard-of race of men that the one church should embrace all men everywhere and at all times was seen and foretold by isaias when looking into the future he saw the appearance of a mountain conspicuous by its all-surpassing altitude which set forth the image of the house of the lord that is of the church and in the last days the mountain of the house of the lord shall be prepared on the top of the mountains isaiah two verses two and three but this mountain which towers over all other mountains is one and the house of the lord to which all nations shall come to seek the rule of the living is also one and all nations shall flow unto it and many people shall go and say come and let us go up to the mountain of the lord and to the house of the god of jacob and he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths isaiah 2 2 explaining this passage optatus of Milevis says it is written in the prophet isaiah from Sion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. For it is not on Mount Sion that Isaiah sees the valley, but on the holy mountain, that is the church which has raised itself conspicuously throughout the entire Roman world, under the whole heavens. The church is, therefore, the spiritual Sion, in which Christ has been constituted King by God the Father, and which exists throughout the entire earth, and on which there is but one Catholic church. And Augustine says, What can be so manifest as a mountain, or so well known? There are, it is true, mountains which are unknown, because they are situated in some remote part of the earth. But this mountain is not unknown, for it has filled the whole face of the world, and about this it is said that it is prepared on the summit of the mountains. Furthermore, the Son of God decreed that the church should be his mystical body, with which he should be united as the head, after the manner of the human body which he assumed, to which the natural head is physiologically united. As he took to himself a mortal body which he gave to suffering and death in order to pay the price of man's redemption, so also he has one mystical body in which and through which he renders men partakers of holiness and of eternal salvation. God hath made him, Christ, head over all the church, which is his body. Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. Scattered and separated members cannot possibly cohere with the head so as to make one body. But St. Paul says, All the members of the body, whereas they are many, yet are one body, so also is Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Wherefore this mystical body, he declares, is compacted and fitly joined together. The head, Christ, from whom the whole body, being compacted and fitly joined together, by every joint supplieth according to the operation in the measure of every part. Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. And so dispersed members, separated one from the other, cannot be united with one and the same head. There is one God and one Christ, 
and his church is one and the faith is one, and one the people join together in the solid unity of the body in the bond of concord. This unity cannot be broken, nor the one body divided by the separation of its constituent parts. St. Cyprianus, in On the Unity of the Catholic Church, number 23. And to set forth more clearly the unity of the Church, he makes use of the illustration of a living body, the members of which cannot possibly live unless united to the head and drawing from it their vital force. Separated from the head, they must of necessity die. The Church, he says, cannot be divided into parts by the separation and cutting asunder of its members. What is cut away from the mother cannot live or breathe apart. A quote from the same Cyprianus. What similarity is there between a dead and a living body? For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, as also Christ doth the church, because we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 29 and 30. Another head, like to Christ, must be invented, that is, another Christ, if besides the one church, which is his body, men wish to set up another. See what you must beware of, see what you must avoid, see what you must dread. It happens that, as in the human body some member may be cut off, a hand, a finger, a foot, does the soul follow the amputated member? As long as it was in the body it lived, separated, it forfeits its life. So the Christian is a Catholic as long as he lives in the body. Cut off from it he becomes a heretic, the life of the spirit follows not the amputated member. St. Augustine, in his homily, 267, number 4. The Church of Christ, therefore, is one and the same forever. Those who leave it depart from the will and command of Christ the Lord. Leaving the path of salvation, they enter on that of perdition. Whosoever is separated from the Church is united to an adulteress. He has cut himself off from the promises of the Church, and he who leaves the Church of Christ cannot arrive at the rewards of Christ. He who observes not this unity, observes not the law of God, holds not the faith of the Father and the Son, clings not to life and salvation. St. Cyprianus in On the Unity of the Catholic Church, number 6. But he, indeed, who made this one church, also gave it unity. That is, he made it such that all who are to belong to it must be united by the closest bonds, so as to form one society, one kingdom, one body, one body and one spirit, as you are called in one hope of your calling. Ephesians 4, 4. Jesus Christ, when his death was nigh at hand, declared his will in this matter, and solemnly offered it up, thus addressing his Father, Not for them only do I pray, but for them also who through their word shall believe in me, that they also may be one in us, that they may be made perfect in one. John 17, verses 20, 21, and 23. Yea, he commanded that this unity should be so closely knit, and so perfect amongst his followers, 
that it might, in some measure, shadow forth the union between himself and his father. I pray that all may be one, as thou, Father, in me, and I in thee. John 17, 21. Agreement and union of minds is the necessary foundation of this perfect concord amongst men, from which concurrence of wills and similarity of action are the natural results. Wherefore, in his divine wisdom, he ordained in his church unity of faith, a virtue which is the first of those bonds which unite man to God, and whence we receive the name of the faithful. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Ephesians 4.5 That is, as there is one Lord and one baptism, so should all Christians, without exception, have but one faith. And so the Apostle St. Paul not merely begs but entreats and implores Christians to be all of the same mind and to avoid difference of opinions. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no schisms amongst you, and that you be perfect in the same mind and in the same judgment. 1 Corinthians 1.10 Such passages certainly need no interpreter. They speak clearly enough for themselves. Besides, all who profess Christianity allow that there can be but one faith. It is of the greatest importance, and indeed of absolute necessity, as to which many are deceived, that the nature and character of this unity should be recognized. And, as we have already stated, this is not to be ascertained by conjecture, but by the certain knowledge of what was done, that is, by seeking for and ascertaining what kind of unity in faith has been commanded by Jesus Christ. The heavenly doctrine of Christ, although for the most part committed to writing by divine inspiration, could not unite the minds of men if left to the human intellect alone. It would, for this very reason, be subject to various and contradictory interpretations. This is so not only because of the nature of the doctrine itself and of the mysteries it involves, but also because of the divergencies of the human mind and of the disturbing element of conflicting passions. From a variety of interpretations, a variety of beliefs is necessarily begotten. Hence come controversies, dissensions, and wranglings, such as have arisen in the past, even in the first ages of the Church. Irenaeus writes of heretics as follows, Admitting the sacred scriptures, they distort the interpretations. In Against Heretics, Book 3, Chapter 12, Number 12. And Augustine, Heresies have arisen, and certain perverse views ensnaring souls and precipitating them into the abyss only when the scriptures, good in themselves, are not properly understood. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, Tract 18, Chapter 5, Number 1. Besides Holy Writ, it was absolutely necessary to ensure this union of men's minds, to effect and preserve unity of ideas, that there should be another principle. This the wisdom of God requires. For he could not have willed that the faith should be one 
if he did not provide means sufficient for the preservation of this unity, and this Holy Writ clearly sets forth, as we shall presently point out. Assuredly, the infinite power of God is not bound by anything. All things obey it as so many passive instruments. In regard to this external principle, therefore, we must inquire which one of all the means in his power Christ did actually adopt. For this purpose it is necessary to recall in thought the institution of Christianity. We are mindful only of what is witnessed to by Holy Writ and what is otherwise well known. Christ proves his own divinity and the divine origin of his mission by miracles. He teaches the multitude's heavenly doctrine by word of mouth. And he absolutely commands that the assent of faith should be given to his teaching, promising eternal rewards to those who believe and eternal punishment to those who do not. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. John 10.37 If I had not done among them the works that no other man hath done, they would not have sin. John 15.24 But if I do the works, though you will not believe me, believe the works. John 10.38 Whatsoever he commands, he commands by the same authority. He requires the assent of the mind to all truths without exception. It was thus the duty of all who heard Jesus Christ, if they wished for eternal salvation, not merely to accept his doctrine as a whole, but to assent with their entire mind to all and every point of it, since it is unlawful to withhold faith from God even in regard to one single point. When about to ascend into heaven, he sends his apostles in virtue of the same power by which he had been sent from the Father, and he charges them to spread abroad and propagate his teaching. All power is given to me, in heaven and in earth. Going, therefore, teach all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. So that those obeying the apostles might be saved, and those disobeying, should perish. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. Mark 16, 16. But since it is obviously most in harmony with God's providence that no one should have confided to him a great and important mission unless he were furnished with the means of properly carrying it out, for this reason Christ promised that he would send the Spirit of truth to his disciples to remain with them forever. But if I go, I will send him, the paraclete, to you. But when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will teach you all truth. John 16, verses 7 through 13. And I will ask the Father, and he shall give you another paraclete, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. John 14, verses 16 and 17. He shall give testimony of me, and you shall give testimony. John 15, verses 26 and 27. Hence he commands that the teaching of the apostles should be religiously accepted and piously kept, as if it were his own. He who hears you hears me. He who despises you despises me. Luke 10, 16. Wherefore, the apostles are ambassadors of Christ, 
as he is the ambassador of the Father. As the Father sent me, so also I send you. John twenty twenty one. Hence, as the apostles and disciples were bound to obey Christ, so also those whom the apostles taught were, by God's command, bound to obey them. And therefore it was no more allowable to repudiate one iota of the apostles' teaching than it was to reject any point of the doctrine of Christ himself. Truly, the voice of the apostles, when the Holy Ghost had come down upon them, resounded throughout the world. Wherever they went, they proclaimed themselves the ambassadors of Christ himself, by whom, Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith in all nations for his name. Romans 1, five. And God makes known their divine mission by numerous miracles. But they, going forth, preached everywhere, the Lord working with all and confirming the word with signs that followed. Mark 16.20 But what is this word? That which comprehends all things, that which they had learnt from their master. Because they openly and publicly declare that they cannot help speaking of what they had seen and heard. But, as we have already said, the apostolic mission was not destined to die with the apostles themselves, or to come to an end in the course of time, since it was intended for the people at large, and instituted for the salvation of the human race. For Christ commanded his apostles to preach, the gospel to every creature, to carry his name to nations and kings, and to be witnesses to him to the ends of the earth. He further promised to assist them in the fulfillment of their high mission, and that, not for a few years or centuries only, but for all time, even to the consummation of the world. Upon which St. Jerome says, He who promises to remain with his disciples to the end of the world declares that they will be forever victorious, and that he will never depart from those who believe in him in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, Book 4, chapter 28, verse 20. But how could all this be realized in the apostles alone, placed as they were under the universal law of dissolution by death? It was consequently provided by God that the magisterium instituted by Jesus Christ should not end with the life of the apostles, but that it should be perpetuated. We see it in truth propagated and as it were, delivered from hand to hand. For the apostles consecrated bishops, and each one appointed those who were to succeed them immediately in the ministry of the word. Nay more, they likewise required their successors to choose fitting men, to endow them with like authority, and to confide to them the office and mission of teaching. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus, and the things which thou hast heard of me by many witnesses, the same command to faithful men, who shall be fit to teach others also. 2 Timothy 2 verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, as Christ was sent by God, and the apostles by Christ, so the bishops and those who succeeded them were sent by the apostles. The apostles were appointed by Christ to preach the gospel to us. Jesus Christ was sent by God. Christ is therefore from God and the apostles from Christ, and both 
according to the will of God. Preaching, therefore, the word through the countries and cities, when they had proved in the Spirit the first fruits of their teaching, they appointed bishops and deacons for the faithful. They appointed them and then ordained them, so that when they themselves had passed away, other tried men should carry on their ministry. St. Clement of Rome, in his first epistle to the Corinthians, chapters 42 and 46. On the one hand, therefore, it is necessary that the mission of teaching, whatever Christ had taught, should remain perpetual and immutable, and on the other hand that the duty of accepting and professing all their doctrine should likewise be perpetual and immutable. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when in his gospel he testifies that those who are not with him are his enemies, does not designate any special form of heresy, but declares that all heretics who are not with him and do not gather with him, scatter his flock and are his adversaries. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. St. Cyprian, in his letter 49, to Manius, number 1. The Church, founded on these principles and mindful of her office, has done nothing with greater zeal and endeavor than she has displayed in guarding the integrity of the faith. Hence she regarded as rebels and expelled from the ranks of her children all who held beliefs on any point of doctrine different from her own. The Arians, the Montanists, the Novatians, the Quartodecimans, the Otusians, did not certainly reject all Catholic doctrine. They abandoned only a certain portion of it. Still, who does not know that they were declared heretics and banished from the bosom of the Church? In like manner were condemned all authors of heretical tenets, who followed them in subsequent ages. There can be nothing more dangerous than those heretics who admit nearly the whole cycle of doctrine, and yet by one word, as with a drop of poison, infect the real and simple faith taught by our Lord and handed down by apostolic tradition. From the author on the tract on true faith against the Arians. The practice of the Church has always been the same, as is shown by the unanimous teaching of the Fathers, who were wont to hold as outside Catholic communion and alien to the Church, whoever would recede in the least degree from any point of doctrine proposed by her authoritative magisterium. Epiphanius, Augustine, Theodoret, drew up a long list of the heresies of their times. St. Augustine notes that other heresies may spring up, to a single one of which, should anyone give his assent, he is by the very fact cut off from Catholic unity. No one who merely disbelieves in all these heresies can for that reason regard himself as a Catholic or call himself one. For there may be or may arise some other heresies which are not set out in this work of ours, and if anyone holds to one single one of these, he is not a Catholic. St. Augustine in On Heresies, number 88. The need of this divinely instituted means for the preservation of unity about which we speak, is urged by St. Paul in his epistle to the Ephesians. In this, he first admonishes them to preserve with every care concord of minds, solicitous to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, verse 3 and following. 
and as souls cannot be perfectly united in charity, unless minds agree in faith, he wishes all to hold the same faith, one Lord, one faith, and this so perfectly one as to prevent all danger of error. That henceforth we be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine and by the wickedness of men, by cunning craftiness, by which they lie in wait to deceive. Ephesians 4.14 And this he teaches is to be observed, not for a time only, but until we all meet in the unity of faith unto the measure of the age of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4.13 But in what has Christ placed the primary principle and the means of preserving this unity? In that he gave some apostles and other some pastors and doctors for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 12. Wherefore, from the very earliest times the fathers and doctors of the church have been accustomed to follow and with one accord to defend this rule. Origen writes, As often as the heretics allege the possession of the canonical scriptures, to which all Christians give unanimous assent, they seem to say, Behold, the word of truth is in the houses. But we should believe them not, and abandon not the primary and ecclesiastical tradition. We should believe not otherwise than has been handed down by the tradition of the Church of God. Irenaeus, too, says, The doctrine of the apostles is the true faith, which is known to us through the episcopal succession, which has reached even unto our age by the very fact that the scriptures have been zealously guarded and fully interpreted. And Tertullian, it is therefore clear that all doctrine which agrees with that of the apostolic churches, the matrices and original centers of the faith, must be looked upon as the truth, holding without hesitation that the church received it from the apostles, the apostles from Christ, and Christ from God. We are in communion with the apostolic churches, and by the very fact that they agree amongst themselves, we have a testimony of the truth. And so Hilary, Christ, teaching from the ship, signifies that those who are outside the church can never grasp the divine teaching. For the ship typifies the church where the word of life is deposited and preached. Those who are outside are like sterile and worthless sand. They cannot comprehend. Rufinus praises Gregory of Nancyansum and Basil because they studied the text of Holy Scripture alone and took the interpretation of its meaning not from their own inner consciousness, but from the writings and on the authority of the ancients, who in their turn, as is clear, took their rule for understanding the meaning from the apostolic succession. Wherefore, as appears from what has been said, Christ instituted in the Church a living, authoritative, and permanent magisterium which by his own power he strengthened, by the spirit of truth he taught, and by miracles confirmed. He willed and ordered, under the gravest penalties, that its teachings should be received as if they were his own. As often, therefore, as it is declared on the authority of this teaching, 
that this or that is contained in the deposit of divine revelation, it must be believed by every one as true. If it could in any way be false, an evident contradiction follows. For then God himself would be the author of error in man. Lord, if we be in error, we are being deceived by thee, said Richard of St. Victor in On the Trinity, Book 1, Chapter 2. In this wise, all cause for doubting being removed, can it be lawful for any one to reject any one of those truths without by the very fact falling into heresy? Without separating himself from the church? Without repudiating in one sweeping act the whole of Christian teaching? For such is the nature of faith that nothing can be more absurd than to accept some things and reject others. Faith, as the church teaches, is that supernatural virtue by which, through the help of God and through the assistance of His grace, we believe what He has revealed to be true, not on account of the intrinsic truth perceived by the natural light of reason, but because of the authority of God Himself, the Revealer, who can neither deceive nor be deceived. From the First Vatican Council, Session 3, Chapter 3. If then it be certain that anything is revealed by God, and this is not believed, then nothing whatever is believed by divine faith. For what the Apostle St. James judges to be the effect of a moral delinquency, the same is to be said of an erroneous opinion in the matter of faith. Whosoever shall offend in one point is become guilty of all. James 2.10 Nay, it applies with greater force to an erroneous position. For it can be said with less truth that every law is violated by one who commits a single sin, since it may be that he only virtually despises the majesty of God the legislator. But he who dissents even in one point from divinely revealed truth absolutely rejects all faith, since he thereby refuses to honor God as the supreme truth and the formal motive of faith. In many things they are with me, in a few things not with me. But in those few things in which they are not with me, the many things in which they are will not profit them. St. Augustine in his commentary on Psalm 54, number 19. And this indeed most deservedly. For they who take from Christian doctrine what they please, lean on their own judgments, not on faith. And not bringing into captivity every understanding unto the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 They more truly obey themselves than God. You, who believe what you like of the Gospels and believe not what you like, believe yourselves rather than the Gospel. St. Augustine in Book 17 in Against Faustus the Manichaean, Chapter 3. For this reason, the fathers of the Vatican Council laid down nothing new, but followed divine revelation and the acknowledged and invariable teaching of the Church as to the very nature of faith, when they decreed as follows. All those things are to be believed by divine and Catholic faith which are contained in the written or unwritten word of God, and which are proposed by the Church as divinely revealed, 
either by a solemn definition or in the exercise of its ordinary and universal magisterium. Session 3, Chapter 3. Hence, as it is clear that God absolutely willed that there should be unity in his church, and as it is evident what kind of unity he willed, and by what means of what principle he ordained that this unity should be maintained, we may address the following words of St. Augustine to all who have not deliberately closed their minds to the truth. When we see the great help of God, such manifest progress and such abundant fruit, shall we hesitate to take refuge in the bosom of the church which, as is evident to all, possesses the supreme authority of the apostolic see through the episcopal succession? In vain do heretics rage round it. They are condemned partly by the judgment of the people themselves, partly by the weight of councils, partly by the splendid evidence of miracles. To refuse the church the primacy is most impious and above measure arrogant. And if all learning, no matter how easy and common it may be, in order to be fully understood requires a teacher and master, what can be greater evidence of pride and rashness than to be unwilling to learn about the books of the divine mysteries from the proper interpreter, and to wish to condemn them unknown? From On the Unity of Belief, chapter 17, number 35. It is then undoubtedly the office of the Church to guard Christian doctrine and to propagate it in its integrity and purity. But this is not all. The object for which the Church has been instituted is not wholly attained by the performance of this duty. For since Jesus Christ delivered himself up for the salvation of the human race, and to this end directed all his teaching and commands, so he ordered the Church to strive, by the truth of its doctrine, to sanctify and to save mankind. But faith alone cannot compass so great, excellent, and important an end. There must needs be also the fitting and devout worship of God, which is to be found chiefly in the divine sacrifice and in the dispensation of the sacraments, as well as salutary laws and discipline. All these must be found in the Church, since it continues the mission of the Savior forever. The Church alone offers to the human race that religion, that state of absolute perfection, which he wished, as it were, to be incorporated in it. And it alone supplies those means of salvation which accord with the ordinary counsels of providence. End of the Encyclical Letter Satis Conitum, On the Unity of the Church, Part 1 Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.